Listener Production. Welcome back to State Crime Command, the official podcast of the New South Wales Police Force. This is episode three of Lost at Sea, The Black Bone. The investigation into the mysterious mandible has been underway for nearly two years and the identity is still unknown. Detectives at Gosford are awaiting results from DNA testing that could give vital clues to identity, including hair and eye colour and ethnic heritage. There's a lot riding on this. A physical examination of the bones suggests the individual could be of mixed Indigenous race, but without phenotyping data, this will remain just speculation. And police will in effect be searching not for a missing boy, but the dentist who worked on his teeth. This investigation needs a breakthrough, and we're reaching out across Australia for assistance and fresh thinking. But I think where we're at now, of course, we've sort of, as you said, the teeth are the best clue. In the absence of a DNA comparison, you know, someone to match a DNA sample to, the teeth are the only clue you've got, really. Back on Yumina Beach here on the Central Coast, if I wasn't convinced before that a storm carried our bone down the Hawkesbury and onto the beach back in 2012. I am now looking at the debris that's come after the massive rains New South Wales has had the last month. It's March 10, 2022, and the beach has been destroyed and covered in debris. Logs, great rafts of stuff all clumped together, human-made materials, bottles, buckets, roofing, chairs, you name it. It's all come out of the Hawkesbury and honour the beach here. And you can see very easily how if there was a human bone near the the edge of the water or in the water, it would be pushed down very easily and deposited on this beach. So I think we're on the right track. Just got to find the rest of them now. I'm meeting Brett White, the former Beachworks manager for Gosford City Council. He's been monitoring the impact of the latest storms on Yumina Beach for the investigation. Good to see you, mate. Yes, yeah, good to see you. Yeah, how things been down here? Ah, uh, busy, mate, with the weather. Yeah. <laughs> Just like everywhere else, I mean, we come through pretty much unscathed here. They were predicting fire and brimstone, basically, but we didn't We didn't get that. My understanding is that Warragamba was overtopping for a couple of days, and then they had to release the water, and normally they've told us in the past that it takes about 10 days from the water, from the dam, to get to the mouth of the Hawkesbury. So, you know, normally that would mean that for the next three weeks, we're going to be getting this wash ashore. Yeah, because we've got big piles here. And I guess this is the interesting because it sort of models yep. what we believe or you saw happen in 2012. Yeah. So much different? Well, there was more then. There was more. Okay. Yeah, yeah. This is going to keep coming. So, you know. And, and it's just... all kinds of stuff. And these, and these big rafts that we spoke about last time, these long yep. piece of timber, yep. which catch everything and make a bit of a V shape and then yep. and then just dredge along picking up whatever's there. Well, we had a chat last Saturday, an elderly man walking in the edge of the water. There was a sheet of a cool room sheet metal that had the polystyrene stuck to it. It hit him and basically sliced his calf off and then sliced an artery on his ankle. So... They had to get both surf clubs were working on him till the uh, ambulance arrived and then the paramedics were quite concerned that they may have to medivac him to Royal North Shore. And that was just something that you couldn't see. Yeah, and hence the beach is closed and will be for some time. 
Brett is showing me how the recent storms have dramatically reshaped the beach, as happened back in 2012. Well, yeah. you can see just here, look how much steeper the beach is than the last time we were here. Right. Remember, there was a bit of a ridge and then it ran down to the water. Now it's basically steep right up to the bottom of the boom. So, yeah, so you can see the action of everything getting pushed up towards the scarp. Yep. The new debris field presents an opportunity to understand how much material came from far away and how much is local. To the south, there's the Hawkesbury River and its tributaries, stretching deep into the interior of the state. And there's Brisbane water to the north, fed by local creeks and drainage. It flows through the Etalong Channel and empties into Broken Bay. Is there any indication, we were talking about the fact that 90% came from the south last time. Yep. And is that the, much the same sort of thing, do you reckon? Yeah, yeah. I've um, actually paddled in the Brisbane water this last week. And the stuff that there seems to be the stuff that's come out of the Hawkesbury. Because that, that's local creek systems, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's not, whereas the Hawkesbury's always bushland and, you know, like after the fires, you tend to get a lot of the burnt wood. You don't tend to get that in the Brisbane water. The scale of this latest flood means many of the local waterways essentially became one, and so debris was distributed very widely. For example, on the day I was there, a deceased Clydesdale horse washed up on Etalong Point in Brisbane water. And it didn't come from a local creek, but a location 90 kilometres away. I think they said it come out of somewhere down near Colo Creek, which is one of the, you know, creeks that flow into the Hawkesbury. Because it's interesting because, I mean, I, I guess we look at, um, in terms of this bone, the most likely direction is from the south, but the horse tells you, well, it can come from the north too. In other words, our missing person could still be a local resident. The forces that shape Yumina Beach are relentless. We go to the spot where the bone was found in June 2020. It's utterly changed and inaccessible in the aftermath of the storms. So this is kind of the area, if I remember rightly. It is. And you can see how much more steeper it is than the last time we... Right. Well, I think also our spot where we're standing on is underwater now. Yeah. By about 15 metres. Yep. So you've seen a huge amount of sand get shifted up the beach. Rodney was quite interested to find out from you whether or not it'd be worth coming back and having a look at this area because so much sand has been moved and the possibility of other bones from this individual being somewhere there. Do you think that's worth... It would be if you got the right tide, like a nice low tide, you know what I mean, and no surf. It couldn't hurt. Yeah. My just thought is with the amount of work and the people and the amount of sand movement that we've had over the years here, if there was other stuff there, it would have been exposed. Whereas at the minute, all it was was the jawbone and nothing since. Yeah. You know what I mean? But no one's ever dug down, though, no, so, of course. It's, so it's, of course. Um, it's still that remote I mean, it could, it could be just out there. Yeah. And we don't get to see it. Yeah. So it's, it's going to take a while for things to settle down here anyway. Um, yeah, well, the sand's funny. It's, um, you know, you can come back in a week's time and there can be an extra 30 metres of beach. It's just what Mother Nature does. There's no rhyme. Well, there, there is a rhyme and a reason to it, but it's Mother Nature's control. This is the end of a long cycle where sand builds up on Yumina Beach over years and then is ripped away into the bay where it circulates and is gradually redeposited on shore. Any other remains that were to be found on the beach are more than likely out of reach now on the ocean floor. I reckon we've lost at least a metre to two metres of just vertical sand. You say vertical sand? Like depth. Oh, like, yeah, you right. You know what okay. I mean? I'm thinking that last time that sand level was about here. You know what I, I mean? I see up to chest level. Yeah, yeah. 
they're in an erosion phase at the minute. Before 2012, we had 20 years of a building phase, so all the beaches on the east coast were lovely and wide and fluffy. It's too soon after the storms to consider any new search. Brett agrees to monitor conditions so police can return to the discovery site when the seas are calmer. If you can find that, buddy, I'd be very appreciative. <laughs> Talk to your mates. Good on you. <laughs> See what I can arrange. Yeah. So Rodney will probably be in touch for a walk himself. You know, might wink or something out. We'll see. But, uh, thanks for your time again, mate. I really appreciate it. It's all right. It's on to Gosford Police Station to share Brett's information with the officer in charge of this case, Senior Constable Rodney Debra. Good to see you again, mate. So up here again, and I caught up with Brett White, went down to the beach, and first thing is, of course, is all the debris, right? mm-hmm. and there's so much of it, and it really kind of models 2012, if, if that's our, our event that washes our jawbone down. And interestingly, there's about a metre and a half of sand that's been cut off the beach, so the slope of the beach is much greater than, than when we were there yeah. last time. Yeah. So if anything is there, and of course it's still underwater right now as well because the tide's right up there. It's all coming out. So, I mean, if anything is there, there's a 1,000 people walking up and down fossicking at the moment. So, you know, if something is there, mm. they'll find it. There's no doubt. So it's really uh, unstable. And you go around to Patonga, which is obviously closer to the Hawkshire mouth, that's like a lumberyard. Covered. You can't see anything. Yeah. So it really, I guess, sort of helps us maybe reinforce that idea that it could have come down that way. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, like we mentioned uh, last time we spoke with Brett, mm. down there, he suggests, like, every time there's those floods, they push all that material up to the back of the beach. And yep. we indicated 2012, 28. Uh, yeah, there's three or four different possible. And I think he sort of half mentioned, like, you know, it's like different sections where he's pushed different material up at different times so I guess some of our thinking would be with the floods, rains, storms, whatever now that probably hasn't been anything washed from the back of the beach out to the shoreline again it'd be more stuff like you say coming down the Hawkesbury. That's right but he reckons he reckons the the amount of debris in 2012 was a lot more than now for whatever Mm -hmm. reason so that's that's interesting as well but it's all guesswork at the moment just looking at the distribution of the debris, that was kind of a thought of my, well, how much has come from which direction? And you see through it along, there's much less. But then again, you got that horse come down, big Clydesdale horse, which was found on Etalong Beach. And that apparently has come from the Colo Creek, which is 90 oh. kilometres away. Wow. And that's on the Etalong side. Yeah. Okay. So, because I was sort of thinking, well, you look at Brisbane Water, say local, and then Hawkesbury, you know, south of Patonga being, you know, Anywhere, but really, both could be from quite a distance away. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So, so it doesn't narrow it down at all. No, it just widens it further for us, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. It really does. The search parameters of this investigation just keep getting wider. There are no records for a missing person to match the bone to, so the analysts are pushing back the estimated date of death and increasing the age range for this individual with no success. We've reached an impasse. On TV shows like CSI, this is when the forensic scientist steps up and finds the answer in a test tube. DNA phenotyping reveals traits like hair and eye colour. Debates over ethnicity are settled, and the name of this lost boy would be known. Roll credits. However, this is a real crime investigation, not a TV show, and it doesn't conform to a script. It's arguable that if no one is missing this boy, the forensic DNA evidence may have limited value anyway. 
If someone has caused this individual's death and dispose of their body in the Hawkesbury, it's unlikely science will prevail on them to come forward. I mean, I think I'm just not convinced the DNA is going to help that much anyway whenever we do get it. Yeah, I don't think so either. I just give that extra jog to someone's memory if that's the case, you know, if there's something unique on the characteristics that comes back. But if someone hasn't reported it and it's a washed out grave and no one realises it, the DNA's not going to help much, I don't think so. Mm, it's, it's right. You're sort of left with what the next steps might be. This discussion about DNA is rendered academic when the results come back in late March. It's inconclusive. There isn't enough of a sample to make any conclusions. It provides no further clues to assist the investigation. So you have to kind of be inventive, I guess. And this is the, I mean, I think that's the problem is a lot of people think CSI, you know, DNA will solve everything, but it doesn't, yeah. you know? Yeah, that's exactly right. It's the can't, kind of shoe leather thing. You can't wrap them up in one hour for TV. That's correct, yeah. <laughs> or even two hours in podcasts. That's so far. right. <laughs> In late March 2022, with DNA testing unsuccessful, the investigation is refocusing on the jawbone itself, looking for other means of identification. The teeth are the best clue. Mm. The jaw is the best clue. In the absence of a DNA comparison, you know, someone to match a DNA sample to, the teeth are the only clue you've got, really. I'm Richard Bassett. I'm Deputy Director of the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine and Head of the Department of Monash University Forensic Medicine. And what was your role in the Black Saturday investigation? Um, I was in charge of all the dentists who came here during Black Saturday to identify the deceased. The Black Saturday fires were among Australia's worst natural disasters. It was actually a series of fires that were raging across the state of Victoria on Saturday, February 7th, 2009. 173 people perished, and all but one of the dead were identified, many of them through fragments of teeth. I've come to Dr Richard Bassett to see if there's anything in the Black Saturday experience that might help police identify the Yamina jawbone. Well, the challenge there was that we had multiple locations of death, so multiple cars, houses, in the bush, everywhere. We had 145 different death scenes across the state, and we had 170-odd deceased people. In one case, there was nine people in the same house that all died, ageing from 70-odd down to about three. And often the remains were all mixed together, all commingled, and they were ash. And the only hard thing that survives was their teeth. So often we just had teeth with broken bits of mandible and broken segments of jaw, et cetera, et cetera, trying to fit the teeth in the right order in order to be able to X-ray them and compare them to dental records. And... It was really, really challenging just to work out which teeth belonged in which head. We had a lot of issues just with that to start with. In terms of dental records, we had an initial list of missing persons of about 3,000 or something, and that was clearly not correct. But that list came from everyone who rang up the missing person's hotline and said, Uncle Joe's missing, and then someone else would ring up and say, Uncle Joe's missing, someone else would ring up and say, so you'd have... 10 reports for the same person. So once we whittled down the actual missing persons list, which took several days, then we could go chasing dental records. We did that in a number of ways. We did that via the conventional method, finding out who this missing person's dentist was. So finding out all the names of all the dentists that belonged to all these people that had died in the bushfires and getting the police to go out and visit the dental surgeries and get all the dental records, bring them into us. And then we'd look at the dental records and we'd go, oh, look, this person's seen an orthodontist, this person's seen an oral surgeon. Can we go get those records as well? So we'd build up a picture 
of all these missing people via their dental records. We used the dental hospitals, got records from there, and we also used the insurance companies, which is something that you mightn't have done yet, where a lot of insurance companies work in conjunction with dentists and they'll have the patient's dental record on their database if the person has dental cover and they're having procedures reimbursed by an insurance company, etc. The insurance company will have their dental records as well. I think out of the 170 missing with dentistry, it was something like about 65% of them we had dental records for, but there was a lot of kids. There was, you know, a few people that hadn't been to the dentist in 50 years or whatever, you know, old people that live up in the bush by themselves. And a lot of those people, they were identified either by DNA or by you know, some of them we identified by circumstances. So the old guy lived in the bush by himself. He was found, you know, his remains were found in his burnt down house. There was no one else around five kilometres from the other nearest house. So clearly it has to be him. So a lot of it was done by that. There was one person for whom we never found any remains for at all. And we can only assume we found his mum in a bath, or the remains of her in a bath, and he was definitely in that house at that time because there was phone records of him making phone calls to people and never found his remains at all. And the theory is he ran off and tried to hide down a wombat hole or was burnt in the forest and his remains were never found. Mm. Because we're sort of faced with a bit of a Hail Mary now, saying that we don't know the search area. It could be much broader than we thought. We don't have anything to connect the jawbone to, but there's some dentistry in that yep. jawbone. Yep. The challenge is how do we get to the person that did that? Correct. And tell us who the patient was. And unfortunately, it's not an uncommon sort of dental procedure to have done. Either the teeth were decayed, which is probably most likely, and so they were removed, or they were removed, you know, back in the old days, they'd take out the first molars for, you know, if your teeth are going crooked. Give yourself some room, straighten your teeth out, don't have braces, but your teeth will straighten out, but you lose your first molars. Phil so, Kendall did say there was some crowding yeah. evident in the jaw, so that could be a secondary. So it but, could be a but, secondary cause, but it's just extractions, at least two extractions. Possibly he's had the upper ones out as well, so maybe four extractions if you find the upper jaw or the skull. That'd um, be nice. That'd be nice. Phil's view was because the second molars were also decayed, that there was a good chance that this person was from a lower socioeconomic background not going to the dentist, and this is his experience as a family dentist up in Newcastle for for yep. 40 years. This is the sort of Yeah, and that's a, that's a perfectly reasonable assumption. Lower socioeconomic status, but has been to the dentist. So it's not that they haven't just been left to rot in essence, but they have actually been to a dentist and they have had those first molars taken out, so they've had some dental treatment. A lot of people will only take the kids to the dentist when they get toothache, for example. So, you know probably had toothaches and went to the dentist and the dentist said, well, we might be able to save these teeth, but it'll cost you $1,000 per tooth. And the person went, don't be ridiculous, take them out. Because the gap also fills up as the, the wisdom teeth Correct. come in and yeah, so exactly. it's actually quite an elegant solution. Yeah. Now, former Detective Senior Sergeant Jeff Maher of the Phoenix Task Force, his memory was that in the process there was a bulletin sent to all the dentists around yes. the country. Yes, we did that. We did that quite a bit when we were really struggling. So that would be when we'd have particular configurations of dental work, you know, an implant and a root canal or something, something that someone might remember because it's a particularly not a very common sort of dental work. So you'd send the x-ray images and put them in the, you know, the Australian Dental Association newsletter and it'd go around Australia and you'd say, does anyone recognise this dental work? With long-term missing people, so we find 
you know, the skeletons in Victoria are always buried up in King Lake. That's where they are and we'll, we'll find them and dig them up and they'll come down here or someone will find them and they'll come down here and we'll x-ray their teeth and look at their dental work and we'll put the x-rays in the ADA bulletin, the Victorian branch newsletter to see if anyone recognises any of it. And that's worked for you in the past? Yeah, that's worked in the past. So you've got... This is you've years got an, and years ago, yeah. Right, an unknown subject and he's identified purely because the dentist goes, aha, I yes. was the one that worked on that yeah, person's teeth exactly. and here are the OPGs. That, yes. Yeah. This visit has inspired a new line of inquiry. I've contacted the Australian Dental Association and they've kindly agreed to send out a bulletin to all their members with information and x-rays of the jawbone. We're hoping it will spark a memory in a dentist, a patient they may have seen in years past. Senior Constable Rodney Debra. We've put together with Phil Kendall that information um, package and, and the x-rays, and that will go out to 12,000 dentists on Tuesday. Mm. But also, importantly, to a number of retired dentists as well. So that kind of gives us our best chance of anything at the moment, I reckon. Absolutely. Um, you know, it could jog one of their memories. And I think probably importantly, something that Phil mentioned too was that um, there probably should have been some follow-up on it. So. It may be maybe one of the dentists that may just trigger in their mind, hey, yeah, I did have a kid or person that had this much done and they didn't come back for the follow-up. Let me check that record. And that's what he's included in his mm. summary, which is highly yeah. technical, like it are I'm sure dentists yes. will go, oh, yes, I know that. D- dentists will understand it all. You and I have got no idea what it Correct. is. Correct. <laughs> it's not aimed at us, is it? So, and I guess that's the point about this is we can, I mean, the podcast has gone out far and wide, but, I mean, I think it's about targeting into individuals and groups that mm. will have a greater interest in this. And it's sort of like it's no longer a search for the body, it's a search for a dentist, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's going the roundabout way of trying to get to the jawbone itself. You know, we have to go through dentists or perhaps another relative's DNA is going to pop up somewhere and match with our profile. The great thing about the work you did with the local dental service is that we got a range of hits there. We got mm. 32, I think it was, mm. possibility, and you just, just kind of eliminate them. So I guess it gives you confidence that, you know, using that criteria with a broader group, you know, could yield something. Well, I certainly hope so. And the good thing also, we got, uh, I gave all the material to our Victorian odontologist mm-hmm. who went through it, and he agrees with everything that, that has been said about age and all that type mm, of stuff. So okay. that's, that's good. That's yep. good. So yep. Phil's on the money. Rod Debra wants to keep the parameters of our bulletin to dentists broad. We want as many dentists as possible to check their old patient lists, especially dentists who may have worked in the public system or in Indigenous health. I just rewrote a couple of... Oh, did you? Okay, okay, okay let's get on to that. Okay, so, and like, all it was was, um, you know, it's not questioning Phil's expertise or anything like that, but just to try and leave it broad, leave the age descriptors and times and dates broader. You know, if we say, oh, you know, he's probably 14 to 16, but, you know, they actually had a 12-year-old and they overlooked that record because not in the age thing that we sent the email out saying this is what we're looking for. Yeah, good point. Just to keep the broadness of their thinking, not just... Okay, I'll toss that file aside. That one's a 19-year-old. That's not what they're looking for. That's a good point, isn't it? Because so, you yeah. want as many people, you want as many options as possible. Out of that and like I said, like I did the spreadsheet, 10 to 30 years old. So, like, I mean, I know with, with what Phil's saying and what Penny said as well, we're probably looking at a teenage male, but hey. You never you know. know. It could be a genetic anomaly, something like that, a 30-year-old mm. that has the characteristics of a 14-year-old. But, I mean, we, we know that sort of stuff happens and... 
Yeah, I think there was some sort of mention of a date to probably died around 2010. Yeah. You know, let's leave it broad. Say if someone had someone from 2000 or 1995, whatever, they're not just going to eliminate it and say, oh, that's too old for what these guys are looking for. Great point. There's no shortage of enthusiasm amongst the team to continue this search, but police need a break and hopefully the bulletin to dentists will provide it. Meanwhile, every line of inquiry remains open and active. If you have any information that can help police to unravel the mystery of the black bone, please get in touch with Crime Stoppers on 1800 333 000 or contact your local police station. All information and sources will be treated as highly confidential. In the next episode, police step up scientific testing to confirm the age of the bone and how long it's been in the water. And an offer of specialist assistance from interstate brings new methods to unlock the identity of our lost teenager. Thanks for listening. State Crime Command is produced in collaboration with the New South Wales Police Force and Real Crime Australia. Written and produced by Adam Shand. Executive producer, Grant Tothill. Original music and mixing by Matt Nikolic. Associate producer, Matt Dwyer. Additional editing by Kelly Falston. New South Wales police producer, Sergeant Donna Bruce. Digital producers, Jack Shand and Oscar Gordon. Research by Nolly Way Shand. Listener.